head back to your seat and with equal enthusiasm, or in fact I should say with even greater enthusiasm, let's grab out our Bibles. Absolutely. We're going to spend some time together this morning in the Word. We're going to turn, if you want to get there, and be extra prepared to 1 Peter chapter 4, just working our way through this wonderful little book. We're up to verse 12, but before we do anything else, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the greatness of who you are. We thank you that you are a God of provision, that you are a God who indeed invites us to come and feast upon the riches of your grace, the fullness of your love, and the depths of your kindness and mercy that you extend towards us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that it is to us. It leads, it directs, it convicts, it encourages. And uh, you yourself, your word proclaims that it goes forth, carrying the power and authority to accomplish all that you send it forth to do. So we simply ask that as your word goes forth, that it would complete its work in our hearts. Lord, we incline not only our ears, but our hearts to you. And we pray that you'd speak to us, Lord. We thank you that you're with us. Would we know your voice? Would your name be exalted and proclaimed, Lord, in our midst, in our hearts, and our lives? We look to you, Jesus, for the greatest gift of all is you. It's knowing you. It's seeking after you and serving you each and every day of our lives. So may we see you and know you, Lord Jesus, for you are the desire of our hearts and the hope for the nations. We pray in your wonderful name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So if you meandered in a little late, we're turning to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be put off by the title. It says in my Bible, suffering as a Christian. Ooh, it's got a certain ring to it, doesn't it? But let me set up the scene first of all before we read this passage of Scripture, remembering that uh, Peter, of course, is writing about true grace, what it is, what it looks like. And there's been an increasing urgency as he brings his letter to a close. He's talked about the reality, he's talked what, about what God's grace is. And then in chapter 4, the fact that we are stewards of God's grace. What does that mean? Well, he says it means that we're to wake up. It means that we need to realize with a passion and an urgency the desperate situation of the world around us. In his words, a world drowning in its depravity. To see that there is a gospel that must be proclaimed, that must be preached, that needs to be proclaimed. And as a result, he says, make sure your prayers are on fire. Make sure you're loving each other passionately. And last time we gathered, we looked at this reality that the very Spirit of God is within us, empowering us to boldly live and shine brightly for His glory. What a privilege that is and what a priority that we were put on this planet to display and proclaim the glory of our God. Now, it would be nice, wouldn't it? If we saw that picture and then the very next passage, the very next phrase was, here's the context in which you will live out your faith, in which you'll live for the glory of God. It'll be a life of comfort. It'll be a life of great ease. 
You'll never know any trouble and pain. In fact, you'll indulge in every pleasure as you live a life of blissful happiness. Now, let's be honest, that would be a nice gospel, wouldn't it? That would be an easy message to proclaim. It would, and in fact, it's often a message that is proclaimed. Follow Christ, and you'll have all the pleasures in this life you want and in the next. Unfortunately, that is not the gospel that is proclaimed. That's not the gospel that was lived and died for in the lifetimes of the early apostles and for Christians since that particular point. Rather than that picture, there's this glorious call, there's a power of the gospel, there's a bold urgency in Peter's writing, but there is also this reminder that it will be played out in the midst of challenge, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, not in the absence of it. So let's read together what Peter says about suffering as a Christian in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. There's the first phrase we'll come back to. You can underline that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Anybody had one of those or a few? Anyone had more than enough of those? Do not be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. There's nothing strange about this, he says. And yet here's a very different response. Verse 13, but rejoice. There's a challenge. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see his perspective. He's saying there is suffering, but suffering for the sake of Christ is not a penalty, but a privilege. There is a life where there's difficulty, but it's a cross that leads to a crown. It's pain that leads us to a prize, the greatest of all prizes, which is an eternity with him as sons and daughters, redeemed, sanctified by his, beloved, by his blood as his beloved, the ones whom he loves. And yet he'll continue on and he'll say, there's a difference between suffering for Christ and suffering for sin. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of us have suffered, not for Christ, but for our stupid choices. And I won't ask that question because I don't have enough hands myself to raise. But there is a difference. Verse 15, so let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. That word there literally means a busybody. Again, we won't ask for a show of hands. Let's move on. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And it begins with us. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? For if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see, there is no easing of the need and urgency to live in holiness as believers, is there? If anything, we've encountered the grace, the goodness, the mercy of God. There is a higher call, not a lesser call, to live for him with passion. And then verse 19, finishing what Peter's really saying about suffering. Therefore, what is our response? How do we respond to a world where there is suffering, to suffering that 
He doesn't say we may experience. He says suffering will seek you out, whether you like it or not. It'll be around you. It will be encountering you personally. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will will entrust according to those who will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, let those who suffer entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Two of the most wonderful words in the whole passage, a faithful creator. And we'll look at that in a few moments. So yes, you might have gathered, we're going to talk about trials and suffering. And that's okay, I was expecting silence. You can save your amens for future weeks. Because it's not a topic that is particularly uh, popular to talk about. But I, I feel this sense that there is a real need for us to address this issue. In our climate, in our lives, there is something so important for us to recognize and realize. This is... An essential conversation for us to have. So let's delve into what is it that Peter is saying? What's he setting up in the midst of this context and his urgencies? He brings his letter to a close. There's three things that are worthy of us focusing upon this morning. The first is verse 12. This is how he opens it up. He says, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised as if something surprising is happening. There's nothing unusual or strange about the trial that his writers, that we have encountered in our life. There is a world of suffering. There's a world of trials. We all will encounter them. We've all had them. And we all will continue to have them in this world that we live in. And yet his urgency in writing this is that we not be surprised. We not be swayed by the things that come across our path. So the question is, are we a surprised people? And part of the reason that I, I've been thinking about this, pondering this reality during this year, is a conversation I had earlier on this year. And it was uh, with someone who was out of town. He called me up. He said, look, can we catch up? I said, great, let's catch up. We had coffee in a coffee shop that I frequent around town. There's a few where, unfortunately, I'm probably on first name basis with the baristas there. But as we sat down and I asked after him, I said, how are you going? How's your family? And this guy has kids who uh, are both grown, grown up kids. They'd be in their late 20s, early 30s. And he said, well, to be honest, things are not going so well. Things are pretty hard and not so much for me, but for my kids. He said, they're going through a really tough time. One of them's been through a bad marriage breakup and the other one's been through Uh, some health challenges and some other significant challenges. And he said, the thing that's probably disappointed me more than anything else, or that definitely has disappointed me more than anything else, is that they've always been brought up. We've we've taught them the scriptures. We've talked to them about God. They've they've had a, a faith. We've emphasized a lot of things. But he said, in the midst of this difficult season, they've both walked away from the Lord. To the point where, particularly with one of my kids, he said, I can't even talk about God. Every time I bring up God, all there is is this anger and this hurt. And in fact, it's a strange paradox where she says she doesn't believe in God, and yet she still is blaming God for everything that's gone wrong in her life. Who's ever been in one of those sort of places? I don't want to believe in him, but I still want the right to be able to blame him for all of my suffering and difficulty. And so we talked through that a little bit. 
I tried to encourage him and he made this statement in the midst of that. And he said, the thing that I've realized, probably more than anything else, that I wish I'd done differently is he said, I believe that my kids through our teaching, through the sermons that were preached, he said, they, they never had any understanding of suffering. They never had any theology of, of difficult times. They had no concept or awareness that that would even exist. The gospel they preached was removed from any difficulty. And so he said the moment that they encountered the slightest hint of difficulty, they ran. And in one case, even turned against what they had originally believed. Was he right in his assessment? I'm not sure. That was his impression of his own family dynamics. I would make this observation. You see, there's a gospel, and we've talked about this a lot as we've gone through this, this little book. There is a gospel and there is a Jesus that the apostles and the disciples not only believed was worth living for, but they believed it was worth dying for. They laid down their lives. And for generations, for 2,000 years, there has been people who not only willingly, but have joyfully laid down their lives for the gospel. As they faced lions, as they faced trials, as they faced tribulation and difficulty. Not only did they have a Jesus who was worthy of their living, they had a Jesus who was worthy of their dying. And I have this concern, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, that we've become a generation where the greatest question is not whether Jesus is worthy of our living and dying, it's whether we can schedule in two hours on a Sunday morning to come and worship as his people. And I don't say that to be critical. I have a genuine concern that we've lost the reality of who Jesus Jesus is in this gospel that he proclaims and preaches. Is he worthy of our Sunday mornings or is he worthy of our everything, our living and our dying? See, we've kind of got this sanitized, comfortable version of the gospel. A Christian comedian, Tim Hawkins, who knows of Tim Hawkins? He's got this great skit. He's talking all about the fact that we've arrived at this place in Christendom where we now have Christian breath mints. Have you seen those? We're so comfortable that even our breath smells nice. We have got comfort down pat. We've got so many versions and translations of the Bible, the right colors, the right styles, exactly. Everything is geared towards comfort. And have we lost something in the equation? Have we lost sight of a Jesus who's not only worth our living, he's worth our dying. He's worth spending every moment of every day in pursuit of, in worship of, in reverence of, for who he is and for what he's done. And here is the great problem that Peter, I believe, is trying to address. You see, if... if, If we're in this place of comfortable Christianity, what happens the the moment any difficulty comes? We run. We wilt. And the truth is, as Peter says, he says, do not be surprised because the storms are coming. You couldn't stop them if you tried. You only have to flick on the news to see that there's storms coming now. There are trials, there are tribulations that will happen, that we will face and yet there is a call for us he's saying do not be surprised be prepared 
Have you got a saviour that's worthy, possibly, there's no better offer of two hours on a Sunday morning? Or have you got a hold of the Jesus who is your everything? See, it's then that you'll be ready to stand steadfast in the midst of the storms. So that's verse 12. Be not surprised as if something strange were happening. Don't be surprised. Be prepared. Who is the Jesus and the gospel that you're following? But verse 13 is equally important. It says, but instead of being surprised, rejoice. And rejoice as far as that as you suffer or share in Christ's suffering, you will rejoice when his glory is revealed. So he's saying, never forget that there is a greater purpose and context for suffering. And I understand that this is a big theological issue. It's probably a little bit weighty for any Sunday morning alone to talk about suffering. But can we just open up the can and just let it loose and see what happens? Let's just delve for a moment into this purpose and context of suffering. What is that all about? It's something that so often rocks Christians in their faith. It's something that so often people who don't believe in God will hold up as the silver bullet. You see, there is suffering, therefore God doesn't exist. Let's talk about suffering for a moment. You see, there is a reality to suffering in our world. There is evil that is around us, and it is real and personally felt. And everybody would have their own list to, to affirm that statement. They'd talk about suffering children. They'd talk about the atrocities of war. They'd talk about murder. They'd talk about burying of a loved one. We are overcome, if we're truly honest, at different times with the brokenness that is all around us. And yet here's the reality as we think about the fact that there is evil you see, if evil exists, and most people would say that it does, then the fact that we are aware of evil necessitates some kind of an objective basis of a moral law. How can we know evil unless there's some concept of something that is not evil? You see, if there's no kind of objective moral law, then not only does evil not exist, but what some people call evil, and bear with me here, is to be celebrated. It's simply survival of the fittest. It's necessary by product of evolution. But all of, us, all of us would say and testify that there is evil. We see it. Not just people of Christian faith. And this is what Ravi Zacharias, a favorite apologist of mine, he calls the great dilemma of suffering. How can we explain evil without the need for objective moral law to exist? How can we deny evil without losing the challenge for the existence of God. You see, the reality of suffering doesn't disprove the existence of God. It's not that the shadow disproves the sunshine, but the shadow is evident that the sun exists. That statement that we hear so often saying the fact that there's suffering proves that God doesn't exist is in fact not much different than saying we want to blame the God we don't believe in for all the issues of our lives and around us. Same logic. So then if there is a role for suffering in God's great design and plan, what is it? That's what we want to know. How do we make sense of it? Why is suffering a part of God's plan? And there's many different lists. There's been doctorates written on this issue. Let me give you a couple of keys, and I'm not even going to develop them, or I guarantee you will be here until next week. Here's a few pointers, a few places that I go to personally that give me encouragement, 
Okay, suffering is in fact somehow evidence of God's eternal plan. How do I process that? And then we'll look at what our response is to be. And here's number one. Suffering proclaims his great story. His great story of redemption. So you think about this, if there is a context and hope that we've said, okay, well, there must be a context. We have suffering, therefore we need a context. There must be a story. And if there's a story, what is its heart? Well, the heart of the story is the cross. It's a savior who was beaten, bruised, bleeding and dying, taking upon himself the sin and suffering of the world. It's the sovereignty of God, the evil of the world and the matchless love and mercy of grace colliding in one monumental event as we look at the cross. You see, God allowed suffering because his purpose was that into suffering would come the one who would suffer in order to take upon himself the suffering of the world. Without suffering, Christ could not have died to show us the greatness of his love for sinners like you and I. It's the greatest masterpiece held against the backdrop of the greatest evil or the greatest beauty found in the midst of the greatest brokenness. See, suffering, as we look at suffering, it proclaims his great story. Number two, suffering enables his great gift. Romans 8, verses 18 to 21, it says, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. A big passage. What's the point? Here's a few key words. What is the heart of God, the ultimate heart of God? This, this passage says, the freedom of the glory of children of God. To set free sons and daughters. To redeem for himself. See, here's the thing is that in order for there to be sons and daughters, it has to be love. Love requires freedom and freedom requires a choice. <sighs> suffering is in the world because of our choices. The suffering of the world we see is not just around us, it's within us. And the suffering, in fact, enables his greatest gift of love, that freely we could choose him. Number three, suffering reveals our great need. Are we still all right? Still bearing with me? Okay. Habakkuk put it this way, famous passage, you'll know this one. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. How many, how many of us realize that Habakkuk was having a bad hair day? He was facing a few issues. He had some troubles. And yet in the midst of his troubles and his trials, he makes this wonderful proclamation. Yet I will Rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, so often it's those who have the least that actually have the most. Isn't it? 
Those who've endured the greatest struggles and suffering are often those who've discovered that the greatest gift of all is Him. It's the sorrows of the world that in fact reveal that Jesus is more valuable than anything else in this world. We could think of others, but there's three. It proclaims his great story. Suffering enables his great gift. Suffering reveals our great need. We're talking big picture here. We could talk in the midst of trials and struggles personally. But Peter is reminding us, number one, don't be surprised. Number two, remember there is a greater purpose to this mystery of suffering. Never lose sight of that. But then perhaps more poignantly for us, more importantly, what is our response? And number three is this. Our response is verse 19, where Peter says this. Therefore, because of this picture, let those who suffer, that's you and I, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Three key words. To entrust means to place something you value in the care and protection of another. Who is that other? In this instance, Peter is saying it is a faithful creator. Faithful means one who has proven themselves to be faithful. A creator means the founder, the uncreated one, the source of all life. See, what's Peter really saying? He's saying there is suffering. There's a greater purpose. But here's the privilege and the priority that you and I have in the midst of whatever goes on. It's to entrust your life to him. You see, in reality, there's so little of our lives that we can control. We like to be in control. Even if we don't admit it, we're all secretly closet control freaks. We like to really think that we're in control of our own destiny. We can do whatever we like. But the reality is there's so little that we actually control. You're going to hop in your car as you leave, presuming that you'll make it home safely, but you have no control over other drivers. You have no control over anything else that's going around you. You like to think, each of us do, that we're in control of our health and there's some things we can do. We can eat well, we can exercise, we can spend billions of dollars every year trying to enhance our looks, but you still can't control that, diagno that diagnosis as you walk in the doctor's office. We can try and control our own emotions in response to situations, but we've got no control over what other people will do or say to us. If you think about it, what is certain in life? Perhaps as the old saying goes, it's only death and taxes. There is great uncertainty, and yet this is the invitation, is that are you going to live your life entrusting and building upon the uncertainty of the world around you, or are you going to entrust your uncertainty into his certainty? And that's not always easy. I think always of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing great suffering, facing death. And he cries out, he gets real with God. He says, God, is there any other way? God, I, I, I don't want to do this. Is there, is there any other way? But not my will, yours be done. I'm not saying that this is easy, but I am saying that this is necessary. I want to just conclude with one story, and we'll bring this all together. And then I've got something in particular that I'd love to just pray into this morning. Another conversation that I had in recent times, this is a few months ago, and someone was sitting down telling me this story. And this is a person I know well, and they've been through some significant 
trials, some significant issues, death, you name it, they've been through it in their lives. A lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty. And this particular person that I was talking to was relaying a conversation that she had with one of her unsaved friends. And she was talking to a friend, giving her an update on how she was going. And her friend looked at her almost in astonishment and said, you know what, I just cannot believe how you have gone through all the things that you've gone through and still you believe in God. Remembering this lady wasn't a Christian friend. And straight away, as the story goes, this woman looked her in the eyes and said, well, I see what you're saying, but to be honest, I cannot believe that anybody would go through even half as much suffering as me without believing in God. And it kind of took this other lady, she said, it took, it took her aback. And she said, you're right, I don't think I could cope and go through even half of what you've gone through. You see, here is the reality of suffering. Peter is saying here, do not be surprised. This is, this is part of the picture of a broken world with broken people. But remember there is a purpose and remember the reality that there is a God who is with you. may not be that you're taken from suffering, but he guarantees that he will prove himself faithful through the midst of everything. Do not be surprised. Be prepared. See the greater context and remember this Jesus who's worth not only your living, but your dying because he first loved and he gave his everything for us. What are we doing in response? We entrust our everything to him and we stand firm in the midst of the storms. Can we pray as we finish? Would you mind standing up if you put your Bibles away? I don't know if there's someone who can come and play keys for us. And I had a sense for us this morning, just as you close your eyes and as you turn your attention to the Lord, as we just bring our time together to a conclusion, this is so often the most important time. It's just seeking the Lord and asking Him, Lord, what, what is there in today, in your message, in your word? What is there that you want to speak into my life? We don't want to just hear messages and go away unchanged. We want to allow the Lord to do, to minister to us, to impart, to challenge and convict us, to help us, to strengthen us, to do whatever He needs to do in our hearts and our lives. And I had one particular sense this morning as we're talking about suffering, as we're talking about difficulty, as we're talking about the hope and the promise that we have in Him. And you know, suffering really is an invitation to greater surrender. It's an invitation to a greater recognition that what we need is Him. That the greatest gift that He has given to us is Himself. And it's not Himself in the absence of any other troubles and trials and any other difficulties and himself and large bank accounts and prosperity and it's himself in the midst of difficulty it's himself in the midst of pain it's himself in the midst of struggle and suffering and so i just want to invite if there is anybody here you can come forward 
receive prayer for anything, but I particularly had this sense of maybe few, maybe many of us just coming and laying things down before the Lord. Just laying things down. It might be worries, it might be doubts, it might be fears, it might be anything, issues. But laying them down and saying, Lord, I choose today to trust you. Not just to trust you in good times, not just to trust you when the sun is shining. But here I am, I am entrusting my everything to you. So that whatever may come through the fiery trial, facing mountains, Lord, I entrust my life to you. I'm keeping my eyes on you. And surrendering afresh these things, these doubts, these fears, these uncertainties. Surrendering my uncertainty to the certainty of who you are. So if, if that's you this morning, I'd invite you just to come and kneel. It's just between you and the Lord. You're just kneeling, saying, Lord, here I am. I'm surrendering this morning. If you would like prayer this morning, just come forward and remain standing. We have a prayer team. If the prayer team could come up now, that would help. And they are ready and willing to pray for you. So you just respond the way that you'd need to. I'm going to pray and then you're welcome to go. But if you need to come and just kneel and surrender some things to the Lord, you do that. If you want to come and actually receive prayer, then you come and stand and the prayer team will pray with you. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave here without reflecting both on the greatness of who you are, but Lord, also on the greatness of our need for you through the seasons, through the ups and downs. And Lord, I pray that indeed there would be moments of surrender here as we lay down afresh to you our lives, as we rediscover the one who's worth both our living and our dying, for you gave your everything to us. Just come Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and lives today. We pray that in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.